Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll revisit the crucial and often controversial subject of immigration reform with Teresa Cardinal-Brown. Managing Director of Immigration and Cross-Border Policy at the Bipartisan Policy Center. Concord Coalition Communications Director Av Harris will join the conversation. And then later in the program, Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson will discuss his new issue brief on the Biden administration's latest student loan forgiveness program, which he says would effectively turn the student loans into federal grants for many students. This week, we return to the topic of immigration. We've examined that a number of times on this program. That's because it's potentially a key factor in maintaining economic growth in the U.S. over the long term. And that all has to do with declining birth rates, uh, which we've had for the last 14 years or so. So you can see the enormous importance of immigration to replenishing our workforce, especially when you combine that with the rapidly growing population of retirees. So this is going to be a key not only to economic growth, but also fiscal sustainability of the federal budget. So with new Republican-controlled House and a surge of uh, immigrants coming to the southern border, we'll ask, could this actually be a moment where some kind of bipartisan compromise might be possible? Here to take a look at that question and others is Teresa Cardinal-Brown. She's the Managing Director of the Bipartisan Policy Center's Immigration and Cross-Border Policy. She has a wealth of experience in this field, working in both the public and private sectors, uh, she was a, a Customs and Border Protection Policy Advisor in the Department of Homeland Security under President George W. Bush. And she also served in immigration policy roles at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the Immigration Lawyers Association. Teresa, welcome to Facing the Future. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, uh, before we get to the issues, and there are many, um, I wanted to just uh, get you to describe the BPC's immigration project. You know, what's the mission? Well, the mission of the BPC, uh, the Bipartisan Policy Center, is kind of right there in the name. It is to try to help design and craft uh, policy recommendations on a wide variety of major issues for the country on a bipartisan basis. So we work with Democrats and Republicans to reach across the aisle. We try to find areas where they can build consensus. Uh, we look for policy solutions that are not only good, but are politically pragmatic. So unlike some organizations which are strictly nonpartisan, we are by name and intent bipartisan. So we believe that the best ideas don't come from either party, but from the creative collision of the ideas from both parties. Uh, the immigration the project has been here since 2013. Um, and like I said, uh, our job and our work is to try to uh, develop policy ideas on immigration that can uh, be supported by both Republicans and Democrats. Um, 
So you've been involved in uh, immigration policy for a long time uh, in the public and private sector. Um, how have the politics of immigration uh, reform changed since the time that you were at the Department of Homeland Security? Well, I mean, I would say even going back, you know, my career goes back to the late 1990s. So um, I've been doing this quite a long time. I think through the first part, at least, of the Obama administration, um, I would say that immigration was a bipartisan issue. Um, You had immigration supporters in, I would say, the pro-business wing of the Republican Party, the free market wing, who understood that immigrants could bring innovation and uh, economic benefit to the country. You had uh, Democrats who supported immigration, usually from sort of a diversity civil rights perspective. But you also had opposition in both parties. Um, you had, I think, always, there's always been a little bit of a nativist wing to the Republican Party, people who were skeptical uh, of immigration and how it might change the country. And on the Democratic side, uh, the labor movement, which was strongly allied with the Democratic Party, had concerns about the impact of immigrants to native-born workers on jobs or wages. Um, so, you know, for most of my time working on immigration, the strategy was always to build bipartisan support, essentially out from the middle. Um, uh, I think that started to change uh, in the second part of the Obama administration or his second term. Um, you know, he pushed very hard for comprehensive immigration reform in 2013. Um, that passed in the Senate with a strong showing, 68 votes, even though Democrats were in charge, but it got a a significant uh, number of Republicans. But the Republican House, then led by Speaker John Boehner, um, was not able to get consensus among the Republicans to bring up the legislation or any immigration legislation, and and it died. And that was really the last time that the idea of a big comprehensive immigration reform package was considered in Congress. Um, And then I think uh, the next major shift came um, after President Obama created the DACA program. Um, Congress wasn't able to agree on a a path to citizenship for the so-called dreamers, the the immigrants that were brought. Could could you just define DACA? Sure, I'll get there. (laughs) Yeah, the, The DACA program was the deferred action for childhood arrivals. And that was an executive action that the Obama administration took that granted a reprieve from deportation and work authorization to some of those children uh, who were brought to the United States or immigrants who were brought to the United States as children. In order to qualify, they had to be um, uh, over 17 to get DACA. Um, But that program caused some divisions. Um, I think particularly Republicans felt that it was a little bit of executive branch overreach, while many, many Democrats supported what he was trying to do since Congress wasn't able to pass legislation. And then, of course, President Trump uh, began his campaign in 2016 by calling for a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border, talked about immigrants in strongly negative terms, and throughout his tenure um, uh, did a lot of things by executive action to restrict and curtail immigration to the United States. And so immigration has been much more of a partisan issue. I think the response to many of President Trump's more restrictive immigration measures among Democrats was to essentially um, bring their parties more, much more strongly together in favor of immigration and particularly in favor of uh, support for legalization for many immigrants. So you know, where we stand today is I think that the issue is more partisan than it has been, at least in my career to date. 
That's not to say that there's not bipartisanship out there and support that can be grown. But I think part of the issue is that for both parties, the issue has taken on much more of an electoral significance. Uh, They use it to motivate their party's bases to hopefully get them out to vote. And as we have seen with other issues that are base motivating issues, uh, the impetus to reach across the aisle to solve those issues is diminished when you believe that keeping the issue alive uh, gains you an advantage in getting reelected or get control of, of Congress. I know I've got some follow ups on just that line of thought. I just want to squeeze in one macroeconomic thought here before we get there, which is that this seems to be a particularly important time for us to be thinking about immigration with our declining fertility rate and rising uh, elderly population. We have a, a real workforce growth issue and immigration could be I'm not saying it's a magic bullet or the whole answer, but we're going to need people. Is that, uh, I mean, so it strikes me this is a particularly bad time to be locked in, in uh, uh, you know, partisan combat over this. Well, from an economic perspective, I think there is very widespread consensus among economists that immigration is good for the overall U.S. economy. Um, most, most economists will tell you that uh, immigrants have a positive effect on native wages or a very small negative effect to some uh, previous immigrants. Um, so the economic evidence is pretty much out there. But I think one of the issues that tends to uh, lean against that, at least from the political standpoint, is that, you know, immigration is a very, very complex issue. And the immigration system is very, extremely complex. Uh, uh, Courts have routinely compared it to the tax code in complexity. But the difference between the tax code and immigration is that, you know, every American has some interaction with the tax code and so has some familiarity and thoughts about what it should be or not be. But not every American has interaction with the immigration system. And so their understanding of the complexities and their uh, positions on what needs to be done are a little bit separated from their own position. Um, And so there are lots of misconceptions about the economics of immigration and whether or not immigrants, as I said, take jobs from Americans or lower wages, even though economists see it very differently. And to your specific point, Um, The Congressional Budget Office just this week came out with its latest demographic projections of the future population of the United States and population growth and the makeup of the population and working age Americans. And they use those projections to do their budget um, uh, analysis of bills that are introduced in Congress. So it's really important for them to understand how many people will be in the United States how many people of working age, how many people of older age that might be eligible for benefits. And what they have said is that by 2040, that's not too long from now, all net population growth will come from immigrants. By 2040, we will have more deaths than births in this country. And so any growth in the population will come exclusively from immigration and immigrants and their children. Um, And that is, as you said, because of declining fertility rates, we're having much more fewer children. The baby boomer generation, which was one of the very largest generations was followed by two successive very small generations. Um, 
And this has a lot of impacts for future economic growth potential, for workforce growth, and of course, the um, our, our social security and Medicare um, uh, programs are based on a certain ratio of working age people to retired people, because it's the current working age people that pay the benefits for the current retirees. And we're looking at that smallest ratio ever. Um, so if we have fewer people working, the ability to maintain our social insurance programs uh, is, is limited, and that will um, cause very big fiscal challenges in the future. So you're right, it, it, you know, for people who understand these things, and maybe this is an alarm bell, we should all be ringing much more loudly um, to say, hey, you know, if we if we really believe that we should not have as many immigrants, that means we're saying we need a smaller population in the country. And that has a whole lot of economic effects on everyday Americans. Yeah, that statistic about more deaths by uh, than birth by 2040 Um just strikes me in a very personal way. <laughs> um, Av, um, you've got some follow-ups. Yeah, so um, uh, very interesting. I mean, uh, the, what you're what you're pointing out, uh, Teresa. So, so I would say you're right that not everybody in the United States uh, interacts with the immigration system on a daily basis, but I would say that everybody in this country, in one way or another has interaction with with immigrants either through the contractor working on your roof or who's preparing your food when you when you when you go out to eat i mean and i'm i'm the son of an immigrant so i've got interaction with immigrants every day <laughs> but what i find fascinating is that there's been nothing in congress really of significance for 10 years on immigration reform when we had such a very comprehensive piece of legislation in 2013, 2014, then it died. But then all of a sudden in the lame duck session, just, just a month or two ago, there seemed to be this um, uh, bipartisan, uh, I don't know if we would even call it a framework. I don't know if it was that fully formed, um, but 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 a conversation that was pretty serious between uh, Senator Tillis of uh, North Carolina, the Republican, and then Senator Sinema in Arizona, who was a Democrat, now an independent. Can and can you uh, what was that? And can you can you walk us <laughs> through that? And what 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 were they actually talking about? As I said, for many Republicans and Democrats, the issue is a live political issue. But I think there is a growing number of members of Congress who are seeing in real time the effects of not fixing our immigration system. As I mentioned, there's lots of divisions in the country about you know what we should do about the border, what we should do about the undocumented, what our legal immigration look at. But there is like unanimous agreement that what we've got now isn't working. <laughs> it isn't working. And you see that every day with the growing numbers of people arriving at the border um, who are claiming asylum, the overwhelming of our immigration courts, even our legal immigration system has record processing delays and backlogs that are affecting people trying to come here via our existing legal immigration system. As you already mentioned, at the same time, we're seeing significant issues with Finding workers in key industries, healthcare. Um, you know, we we just passed a really big uh, infrastructure law, um, the Chips and Science Act, that's supposed to restart uh, innovation, research and development, and manufacturing in key high tech sectors, including you know semiconductors and other technologies. But we also have this disconnect in that 
the number of people graduating from advanced degree programs in the United States in those research fields, a lot of them are immigrants who don't have a way to stay. Mm -hmm. So we, we have a big disconnect between the way our immigration system looks right now, which hasn't really changed fundamentally since 1965, was last updated in terms of numbers in 1990, um, and what we think we need for the country. And then again, the, the, the infrastructure, the processes we have put in place to try to manage migration and secure the U.S.-Mexico border for the last 20 years or more are having a decreasing effect because migration itself at the border has changed. For most of the 20th century, all the way till the beginning part of this century, 90 plus percent of everybody that came to the U.S.-Mexico border to immigrate was Mexican, was adult, single males, and they were trying to evade, capture, to sneak in to work, and then maybe would work for a while and go back. But that's no longer the case. Now we have significant numbers of families of unaccompanied children who are not from Mexico, who are for con from countries as far away as India and Ukraine and Cameroon, um, as well as all of Latin America. And that has, and they're not trying to evade detection. They're turning themselves in, overwhelming the border patrol. So those, that, that process, that whole way we have treated the U.S.-Mexico border for enforcement no longer works. And you've seen struggles from the Obama administration, through the Trump administration, through this administration, trying to figure out what do we do with this new migration trends. So when I say every part of the immigration system is not working, I literally mean every part of the immigration system is not working. And what you saw Senator Sinema and Senator Tillis try to do was looking for serious bipartisan ways of trying to address the border issue, which is a crisis. It is a humanitarian crisis. It is an immigration crisis. I would argue it is also a security crisis because we don't know what we don't know because we're dealing with the asylum seekers. And it's, um, you know, it's a crisis politically for, for the, the Biden administration and for Congress. And they're trying to also look at the status of these DACA recipients, this program that President Obama created in 2012 that was supposed to be temporary until Congress could do something. They haven't done anything, 10 years online. So they're, they were trying to link those issues. I think they were very serious attempts. I think a lame duck session is a really sort of intense, short time frame to try to negotiate something that complex and difficult, and they just kind of ran out of time. But they're back at it now, and they're continuing to try in this new Congress. So we'll see, see if they can they can come to some sort of agreement. We're going to have to take a break in a second. We, we, we have about a minute left. Av. Do you want to tee up your next uh, segment? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, so that's what I was going to ask you. Maybe we can get into uh, into this more after the break. But um, do you see a potential at all for does does that mean does that open some kind of window for, you know, maybe some kind of bipartisan action, however modest it might be? There's that. And then there's the other view, which is, OK, with Speaker McCarthy having to really beg for his job from the people who are most extreme in his party. There might not be such a, a, a chance at all for any kind of bipartisan compromise. And we're going to have to take a commercial break. And, and I'll just warn you that in the next segment, I want to ask something about the new Biden asylum policy that seems to be getting 
um, criticism from both sides. So we'll get your take on that. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition Communications Director of Harris. And I are talking with Teresa Brown from the uh, uh, Bipartisan Policy Center Immigration Project. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and uh, Concord Coalition Communications Director of Harris. And I are talking with Teresa Cardinal Brown, Managing Director of the Immigration and Cross Border Policy at the Bipartisan Policy Center. Uh, Av, you were uh, you were teeing up a, a, a new question when we had to take the break. So, do you think right now we're at a moment of possibility for a bipartisan immigration compromise? Or do you think uh, that that possibility is less likely because of who Speaker McCarthy is depending on, uh, you know, for his speakership? So I think conventional wisdom in D.C. is that divided government is a recipe for getting nothing done. (laughs) That having been said, Um, Interestingly, a lot of big immigration bills, at least historically, have passed in divided government when the parties have to work together to get anything accomplished. Um, So I think that that makes me optimistic that there's always a chance. I mean, you mentioned Speaker McCarthy, who had to go to, you know, a a 14th vote to get the speakership. Um, You know, one thing to understand about that majority is it's very tiny. And that, frankly, so is the Democratic majority in the Senate. They gained one seat. So they now have an official majority of 51 seats in the Senate for Democrats, which means the vice president doesn't have to be on hand at all times to break ties. Um, But in the House, you know, he has got four votes, a four vote majority. Um, That's a little bit less than Nancy Pelosi had when she was speaker. And we saw how much she sometimes struggled to bring the edges of her party together in unanimity. Um, And you saw that in that the speaker vote had to go to 14 votes. So, yes, it's true that McCarthy did negotiate with a lot of sort of his far right flank people who have very strong views about immigration and enforcement and tend to be much more um, restrictionist in their viewpoints of of what immigration is or should be to the United States. Um, But. With four votes to spare, you're also seeing some of the moderate Republicans raising their hands to say, hey, wait a minute, just because you've agreed with those people doesn't mean we're on board. So to give you a perfect example, one of the first bills that the speaker tried to bring to the floor of the House was a bill sponsored by Republican of Texas, Chip Roy, on the border. And it was a very restrictive border bill. It would have basically told the Secretary of Homeland Security that he had to prevent the entry of any immigrants unless he could detain everybody in the United States. And, you know, it's a very extreme sort of bill. It's not clear that it would actually work. Um, There's real reasons why we can't just like prevent people from entering the United States because Mexico doesn't have to allow us to send anybody back there they don't want other than their own citizens. Um, But members of his own party from that moderate view, including Republican from the Texas border, Tony Gonzalez, put up his hand and said, nope, this is not the way we should be going about it. We need to deal with the border, but it can't mean completely shutting off asylum. So it seems to me that even within the Republican Party in the House, the Speaker is going to have to manage some negotiations between the parts of his party 
And that gives an opportunity for Democrats also to work with maybe some of the moderates in the Republican Party to address what they think is a broader issue. And certainly if anything's going to get enacted into law, it has to pass the Democratic Senate and our Democratic president, President Biden, has to be willing to sign it. So I think there's a few reasons for some hope. If President Biden makes immigration a priority and works with Congress, like rolls up his sleeves, and he's proven that he can do that. He did it when he was vice president Obama. He spent a long time in the Senate working on bringing together people. Um, I think that can have an influence in trying to get some stuff together. I think the other thing is just we're at a point where doing nothing really is not is making the situation a whole lot worse. And I think the fact that Congress understands that it needs to take action, I think that's a bipartisan feeling, um, might incentivize folks to to try to come together. Now, we'll see. There's a long way between here and there. Um, but I think, you know, there there's there's seeds of hope there that we can nurture. Well, one of the areas that it, it seems kind of interesting, you mentioned asylum, is the Biden administration has come up with an interesting proposal, not a proposal, it put it into effect, but to deal with asylum, which kind of seems to take uh, a little bit from column A and column B, the end result being that everybody's mad at them. But, <laughs> but, but basically, they came up with this idea of allowing asylum seekers from uh, a certain set of countries to uh, come in under the parole system, and then people that didn't come, that, that came in without going through the process, which I guess you have to apply online with an app, um, uh, that they would send them back, um, ex, you know, as sort of a immediately under under Title 42, which they're trying to get out of. So, you know, the people that don't like Title 42 are really upset about them. And the people that don't want the asylum seekers coming in, in the first place are mad at the parole side of it. And the first few weeks seems to be that it's working pretty well. Um, so, I, you know, that doesn't mean that it's good or even legal, but it's, it struck me as kind of a creative use of all these levers, but everybody seems to be mad at them. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, you know, a saying in Washington that if you, if you have both sides mad at you, you're probably on the right track. Um, <laughs> and, and, and that may be what the Biden administration thinks. Um, here's what I would say. I think that they're trying new things because, again, Congress hasn't passed legislation. They're looking at what tools do they have in their executive administrative toolbox to use. And parole is one of those things that has been used by presidents for a very long time. It's a very broad authority in immigration law. Um, but as you said, uh, many Republicans are disappointed because they don't think he should be using this authority in the way he's using it. Uh 20 some states led by Texas just filed a lawsuit to stop him to stop these programs because they don't think he should be letting people in on parole. Um, but the Title 42 issue is a really interesting one. As you mentioned, the Biden administration just today said we're going to end the COVID public health emergency in May. Title 42 is the public health law that the order from the CDC was issued in March 2020 under the Trump administration that said, because of this COVID public health emergency, we are going to not allow people to come into the United States and we're going to send them back out without any immigration processing to protect the country from COVID. So you have this dichotomy of, 
well, if we don't have really a COVID public health emergency anymore, why are so many Republicans who wanted to end the public health emergency wanting to keep Title 42? And it's strictly because they see it as an immigration enforcement measure. It's never meant to be that way. And the continued reliance on it is basically saying, oh, we're going to rely on environmental law to enforce tax policy. I mean, it's kind of a odd thing. But it tells you how desperate people are for some sort of magic solution to manage migration at the border. They think Title 42 would work. And if Title 42 doesn't exist, then we'll build a wall. But a wall isn't going to work. It didn't work for Trump. You know, there's no magic fix here. We need to kind of think more broadly than that. Um, But the other piece of this is that First of all, what Biden has done is sort of country specific. So the four nationalities that are covered under this parole program are Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Haiti. Now, three of those four countries, we do not have diplomatic relations with, which means we can't deport their people back to them if they don't qualify for asylum, which means we were letting people in that, frankly, we're going to stay in the country. And that's not sustainable. Um, so they they created these programs in part to say, OK, we'll give you a legal way to try to come. And if you come on parole, then you can apply for asylum later. But we're also not going to let you unless you come this way. That was to basically reduce the number of people they saw at the border. And you, you're right. It temporarily has worked in the short term, very short term. We're talking two weeks. The problem I see is multifaceted. One, these aren't the only nationalities coming to the border. We're seeing large increases in Peruvians because there's unrest in Peru and Colombians, Ecuadorians. And as I said, we have people coming from India and Cameroon. A country by country sort of process is not going to be a long-term fix. We need something that is flexible to deal with an ever-changing group of nationals that we're seeing at the border. The second thing is that we're still admitting people into the country under this parole program, parole is a temporary status. It doesn't lead to anything unless you follow on with asylum. But the asylum system is so backlogged that you may not know if you can stay for four years. So how does that serve our country to not have that decision? At the end of those four years, you've now been in the country six years. And if you're denied asylum, are you going to then be deported? Do we have the resources to do that? We've already said we don't have the resources to deport the 10 million unauthorized people in the United States now. So it's kind of kicking that can down the road. So I see what the administration was trying to do. It's trying to manage what's happening just today at the border. But I don't see those policies as a long-term fix um, or even a, a, a flexible enough solution. And I think um, particularly since Title 42 is going to go away, figuring out how you address the situation under immigration law without congressional help is going to be very challenging. Yeah, I think that um, it's indicative um, of a lot that's happening around the federal government in general. I mean, when you have these gridlock, then you then you have people trying to find workarounds and, you know, policies that may create problems of their own and certainly are not uh, permanent fixes. And I think that's what uh, that's what we're seeing here. Things that are more more driven by political imperatives than uh, political imperative and sort of um, immediacy and urgency of what's happening today without thinking over the horizon about what's going to happen in the future. Uh, and, And the other thing I would just add is you're right. Various administrations of both parties have been trying to figure out immigration workarounds because Congress hasn't passed any substantive law. 
the result has been that every administration of both parties has ended up in court and courts will rule like a, a complete overturning of a policy or an order to reinstate a policy an administration is trying to end immediately. And so you have these very rapid swings of policy, both from administration to administration, but also because of court orders. So immigrants don't know what to expect at the border. So many of them are like, well, if we if what's happening right now doesn't give me a chance, I'll just sit here in Mexico and wait because give it a couple months and a court may allow me in. I wanted to talk to you more about the legal immigration system a bit, but we'll get we'll get that always gets set to the sideline because there are these immediate crises that everybody's worried about. But we will be sure to get back to that uh, and have you on the show again. Uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and we've been talking with Teresa Cardinal Brown, Managing Director of the Immigration and Cross-Border Policy at the Bipartisan Policy Center. We'll be right back after these short messages when we'll be talking with our chief economist, Steve Robinson, about the latest proposal on student loan reform. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And for this segment, I'm joined by Concord Coalition chief economist Steve Robinson, who's written a new issue brief on the Biden administration's latest student loan initiative uh, in which he poses the question whether loans are being turned into grants. Um, Steve, uh, what's the kind of the sum and substance of the new proposal, which I, I would frame it as sort of part two of the proposal that was originally announced this year? Last fall, the Biden administration announced that it was going to write off between ten and twenty thousand dollars of student loan per per student, and that was announced back in the fall. Um, that's been challenged in the courts and is currently um, being under under review at the Supreme Court. Or they're they're supposed to do hearings in February, but as part of the announcement of that um, debt debt forgiveness proposal, the administration also announced that the Department of Education would be issuing new regulations. And those regulations came out uh, back at the beginning of this month in January. And essentially what those regulations say uh, is they're gonna create a new uh, income-related repayment plan. And there, there are several repayment, income-related repayment plans in current law. Actually, some of it's in law, some of it's in regulation. Um, and essentially what they're doing is they're taking an existing plan and modifying that and calling that sort of this new uh, repayment plan. And essentially what it does is it allows students to, instead of paying, the normal student loan is, is a 10-year fixed payment. So you borrow money to go to college, you graduate, and you start paying it back. And your monthly payments are a fixed amount and you repay the loan over 10 years. What the income-related plans do is they say, instead of paying a fixed amount over 10 years, you pay a portion of your income over 20 years, uh, 20 years for an undergraduate loan and 25 for graduate loans. And essentially, currently, the plan is you pay 10% of your income to the extent that your income exceeds 150% of the poverty level. And the poverty level for an individual is about $15,000. So, you know, 150% of that or 200% of that. So what 
What the new proposal says is that instead of paying 10% in excess of 150% of poverty, you only pay 5% of your income in excess of 225% of poverty. And so that would be roughly 30, about $33,000. So if you're an individual and you make under $33,000, you wouldn't have to make any payment on your loan. Um, to the extent that your income is above 33000 you would pay 5% of your income um, to the, of the amount above, above the 33000 So to sort of put this in perspective, um, the old program, if you, if you went to college for four years, you borrowed as a, as a dependent of your parent. Uh, so you're you know, 18, 19 years old, you're still claimed as a dependent by your parents on your tax return. Um, you could take out a maximum of $27,000 in loans over four years. And under the current income, the, the 10%, 150% ratios, uh, you would pay about 80 cents on the dollar in present value uh, if, if you were sort of in that income range of, of 150 to about 300% of poverty. The new proposal, because it expands the income threshold and lowers the payment, you would pay about 60 cents on the dollar. So out of that $27,000 that you borrowed, uh, you know, the, the present value of the loan, the amount that you would repay for every dollar you borrowed, you'd pay back about 60 cents. Whereas under current law, for every dollar you borrowed, you'd pay back about, about 80 cents. So it's a substantially larger subsidy, but moreover, not only is the subsidy larger, but the universe of students who are eligible. In other words, the current proposal, because it, roughly phases out at about 300% of poverty, about a third of students fall in that income range. Whereas at 225% of poverty, the subsidies phase out closer to 500% of poverty. And that's almost half of the people. So if you look at census data, how many people you know, go to college and get an associate's degree, two-year degree, or a bachelor's four-year degree, that population of students uh, almost half of them would be eligible for subsidies. Almost a quarter of them would be eligible for, for a zero payment because they fall below the 225% of poverty. So this is a huge increase in the subsidy and a huge increase in the number of students who would be eligible to receive the subsidy. What's the uh, estimated cost on this? I mean, the other one was Present net present value of four hundred billion, according to the CBO. Um, what uh, we don't have a CBO score for this yet, but what's the administration right. say? Well, the administration estimated that it would cost about just just shy of one hundred and forty billion dollars, and that's over a ten year period, and that's a present value number. But it's interesting in their estimate, what they assumed is that the the students who use the current income-related repayment plan would switch from the old plan to the new plan, and that would be about $140 billion. Now, essentially what they're saying is that we've expanded the universe of students who would be eligible for subsidies, and we've increased the subsidy, but we're assuming that no additional student will borrow no additional money to take advantage of these subsidies. I mean, it's just it's a bizarre sort of you know, notion, a sta it's a static score of, of, of an extreme degree. Now, actually, the, the Penn Wharton budget model uh, released its estimate this week, and their numbers are, are as you might, might uh, guess, are, are different. They, 
They said, now, it is true that if no students borrowed any additional money than they do today, it would be about $140 billion. But the Penn Wharton budget model basically recognizes that because this subsidy is so much more generous, that it's quite likely that additional students will take advantage of the uh, income-related repayment. And so they came up with a range of estimates depending on how many people responded to these additional you know, subsidies. And their high estimate was a close to $470 billion. And interestingly, they said, now that of course assumes that the, the current number of students who borrow the current amount will simply switch from an existing repayment plan to this new repayment plan. So it doesn't assume that any additional students will borrow any additional money to take advantage of the subsidy. So in fact, and they said in their report that they're going to look at that question and probably come back with a new estimate to say, well, you know, if if all of the students who borrows borrow today were to maximize their borrowing and then take advantage of these new subsidies, the cost could be substantially higher. Um, I mean, one of the things I noted in my, my report last week is that currently there are about 19 million undergraduate students, 7 million of that 19 million borrowed uh, for a student loan, and they borrowed roughly $60 billion. Now, they didn't borrow the maximum amount they could, and obviously the 19 million students, some of them didn't borrow anything. So if every student were to borrow the maximum amount, the cost could be, you know, 130 billion, or the amount of borrowing could be 130 billion to, to, to somewhere close to 200 billion. And so it's, you know, it's interesting. I mean, if you made the subsidies generous enough, the question is how many additional students would borrow? I mean, you know, if, if you know that you're going to only have to pay back 60 cents on the dollar, why would you not borrow, you know, borrow a lot more than you're currently borrowing and students who currently are saving and scrimping and working and trying to pay their own way through school, if they discover, depending on what, you know, career, what path they choose and, you know, what they think their future earnings could be, they might pay absolutely nothing for their loan. Uh, and, and alternatively, my, you know, my estimate is somewhere around 60 cents on the dollar. I mean, it, it could be, you know, this could be a massive expan expansion uh, of government spending on student loans. And the interesting thing is this is all being done through regulation. And, you know, it's, it's questionable whether the current statutory authority gives the Department of Education the ability to do what they've proposed. Well, that's a, that's an interesting point because these thresholds are set in in law, and the, the education department is changing, in effect, changing them by yeah. right. I mean, that's that's really the, the the legal question that 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 seems to be you know an open question. The law establishes the ten percent of income and the hundred and fifty percent of poverty threshold. Those are in the statute. So the question is. The Department of Education wants to change 10% to 5% and 150% to 225% by regulation. Now, normally you can't change a statute <laughs> through regulation that you don't know, have the authority to do that. Now, I, I suppose somehow they think they have the right to do that, but you know, it, it seems to me that is a that is a question that that could be raised and, and it could be challenged in the court. So you know, even if the debt repayment plan gets struck down, it could be that we'll see another flurry of lawsuits over this new proposal. 
w- speaking of the uh, the uh, debt forgiveness plan, what is the status of that? It's uh, I, I believe it's coming up soon for argument? Yeah, there were two cases that the Supreme Court has agreed to hear. The, the, the main case is the uh, attorney general, uh, the state attorney general's case. Uh, I think the lead plaintiff there is the state of Missouri. And they, um, the, those cases have been joined and the Supreme Court has announced that it will hold hearings in February. Now, you know, the fact that they're going to review the cases in February, whether the court makes an expeditious you know, ruling or whether it gets, you know, drags into the spring or summer, you know, that remains to be seen. But, but yeah, as, as of now, the debt repayment uh, or debt forgiveness is on hold because of a court decision that basically, you know, put, put a uh, injunction against the administration going forward. And the Supreme Court has agreed to hear those. That's all the time we have for this week. Uh, I'm your host, Bob Bixby. You're listening to Facing the Future. I've been talking with Teresa Cardinal-Brown at the Bipartisan Policy Center about immigration policy and our own Steve Robinson, chief economist at the Concord Coalition, about the new education uh, uh, income-driven repayment plan. Tune in again next week when we will have another edition of Facing the Future.